When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the October edition of The Compliance Live. The Compliance Life details the journey to and sometimes from the CCO position. This month, I feature Bridget Abraham, the CCO at Remitly, who has one of the most unique journeys to the CCO chair that I've come across. It's a fascinating exploration of how to get to the CCO chair. In this episode one, she talks about her academic career and early professional life. I know you'll enjoy this month on The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with Bridget Abram. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to another edition of The Compliance Life. This month, I'm visiting with Bridget Abram, and Bridget is a chief compliance officer, but she has a journey that's a little bit different than most chief compliance officers. She is assuredly not a lawyer and doesn't come from a legal background, so it's going to be a great exploration of Bridget, her journey and her story into the CCO chair. Bridget, first of all, welcome. And I'm very excited to be able to visit with you over this month's series. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Bridget, could you tell us a little bit about your academic background? You have an undergrad and master's and then your early professional career. Sure. I went off to college as the first in my family. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a family background and path, but I was always very interested in numbers and history. And so when I went off to college, I discovered I really enjoyed economics and the study of financial performance in various industries. So I attended Colorado State University and I 
got my undergrad in economics with um, almost a minor, but I didn't claim it in math. And so I spent a lot of time working on numbers and others. And then I quickly went into getting my master's there as well and focused my research on agricultural economics, which was really about sustainability and the environment that had the impact that it had in small rural America and what kind of research we could do focusing on the economics of small business and the importance of agriculture in those local communities. And through doing that's how I ended up actually at the Federal Reserve Bank, where I was presenting my research at various forums. And I started my career with the Federal Reserve Bank working on economic research. So I was a junior economist working on how we did research and focusing on the open market committee. So voting on the various interest rates and on things like that. I was one of those research analysts that led to focusing on how we determined interest rates. And there I also continued to focus on rural America and the importance of things like broadband and varied industry in the local. You are the very first CCO who has a master's in ag eco. Uh, wow. Very impressive. I, my dad taught it at an agricultural college, so I know what that is. But tell me about the Fed. Was My perception is it's a group of very intelligent, highly motivated individuals, very collaborative. Certainly you have your everyday run-of-the-mill conflicts, but it's something that people really tend to cherish their time there when I talk to them. Could you tell us a little bit about that part of your experience? Working for the Federal Reserve is an incredible opportunity where you have the opportunity to learn so many various things. And you're right. You work with incredibly smart people who have an amazing background and an ability to think strategically and critically and laser focus, right, on the economy and other things like that. And the the program there for the economic research in the junior economist is really geared to try to move you to a PhD to focus on economic policy and, and other areas. And so it's a really amazing training ground where you get to understand what gets put into all the important factors that get put into an economy and how important things like local banking is, retail markets, they all come together on determining what, how do you determine and set policy that's going to have the biggest impact on your local community. And you really do get to work with some really renowned people around the world that have a true passion for what they love to do. And they also offer an amazing training program around, around those things. Which Federal Reserve Bank district did you work? I worked in the 10th, so I worked for the Kansas City Fed. And after you, where did you move from the Fed? During the Fed, so during that program, I decided I, my passion was not in doing research and writing papers. So I actually took the opportunity while I was at the Fed to move into banking supervision. So the Fed has the economic research side. And then, of course, as most people on this podcast would be familiar with is the economic research and the super, or sorry, the supervision side. And so I wanted to learn more about all the nuances of banking and the, the balance sheet and the activities that they had. My family growing up had small rural banks in Kansas and Missouri. And so I always had an interest in it. And I took that opportunity and learned from there. And during that time, when I was at the Fed, it was right after 9-11 and the implementation of the Patriot Act. So that's how I started to get into compliance from the Fed. I was mostly focused on credit risk and looking at those types of activities at banks, but then everybody had to take a turn working on these new BSA requirements and examinations of these banks. And I started really being interested in it and learning about financial crimes and terrorist financing and how we identify some of that and work with banks to get on there. Um, and then from there, I moved actually to New York City 
and started working in consulting and working with lots of large institutions in the New York City area, including City and many others that I eventually went to on their overall BSA programs. So at that time, there was a lot of lookbacks and private banking and other things happening there to comply with the Patriot Act requirements. Let me ask you about your time at the Fed in the banking supervision where you were working with banks around what was the first, or it's not the first, but the Patriot Act which enhanced the Bank Secrecy Act. Was that really a learning experience, both for the Fed and for the Fed's customers, the banks of implementing the regulations? Was it collaborative? What was that experience like for you and the Fed? It was certainly a time where there were a lot of new requirements, a new understanding of what we were looking for. And it really depended on the size of the bank and where they were located. I think there was more focus on medium to large size banks at that time and learning about what kind of controls really should be put in place to look for this type of activity. There were controls. We, There was KYC and there was certain things that we looked for to understand and know the customer. But that, especially in the community banks at the time, was something they knew about anyway, right? Because they were local banks. They really knew their customer and their client base. But growing that into monitoring to look for nefarious activity, whether it was their customers being scammed out of something or being involved in some sort of money laundering scheme, was new. It was collaborative. There was a lot of conversations and discussions, but there were, it was a time where there were a lot of, there weren't a lot of playbooks, exactly what to look for and what to put in place. So it was a lot of analysis to understand what could we be focusing on here? What would we be looking for? And how do we start to move those controls into the appropriate place? Did banks at that point make the connection between illicit financing And terrorism, was that something that was already in the wind or in the air, or was that an educational process or almost, as you said, a conversation as well? I think it was more of a conversation at the time on how they could use to move those monies and those funds. How could they look for it? I think there was obviously a recognition that the money flows through there, but I think it was changing the mindset to say, what do we have to proactively look for versus report when something happens to us at the bank. So how do we actually start looking for that in the future rather than reacting and closing down accounts and reporting it? Should we find something? And I think that was the conversation that was really starting to happen at that time. And I've talked to several people who went into financing, financial controls, compliance, and other requirements that really came about because of 9-11. My sense in talking to them there at that at that point in their careers, there was a recognition that this was important and this had to change and that although they may not have been carrying a gun as a law enforcement officer, that they, banks and compliance officers around and people at the Fed even, were on the front lines of a new fight in this or defense in the war against terrorism. Did you all have that sense? For the most part, yeah. I think particularly in some of the more medium to larger size institutions, understanding what role they play and not wanting to be caught helping to facilitate that activity because there was such a deep scar and pain that was still happening with what happened in 9-11 and really seeing the impacts of that here in the U.S. I think made a big difference. So really wanting to be on the forefront for how we could all collectively identify that or prevent it from happening in the future. So you said you went into the consulting world and then you went to New York and worked at financial institutions. Could I ask you a couple of questions about your work in the consulting world? And how you found that experience? I think the amazing advantage of working in the consulting space is being able to see so many institutions. And you often see them at a time 
where they're either in trouble or they're having difficulty doing something, meeting it, or even just putting the right resources together. And you get to learn a lot about what each institution is doing, how they're approaching, looking at it, and you make so many connections across the board. And so I think that was an amazing learning experience and bringing some of your knowledge and expertise from seeing various activities at different institutions is a huge learning curve. I think when those banks or institutions worked really well was when they really brought in the consulting partner to help collaborate together to figure out and how to solve the problem. So I think the biggest advantage of working in that space is really just how much across all these different institutions and what issues they're dealing with, how some have resolved it and learning those best practices across the board. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.